You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Romans 3, 1 through 8 says this. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If someone were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if I, by my lie, oh, excuse me, but if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come? Their condemnation is deserved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this interesting text full of objections, it's my prayer, Lord, that you would speak to us, you would communicate even through these objections, and maybe if we have these objections, Lord, that this would be informative. But God, also, as we see objections that come from outside the church and inside the church, when we have doubts and when we have questions, Lord, your word shows us how we are to deal with those things. So God, it is my prayer that you would speak to us, especially, Lord, to the one who has doubts, especially, Lord, to the person who's dealing with the objections of a friend or a family member about who you are, about what your word says. Lord, equip us well to see that you handle these objections and that you would like us to come to you with doubts, with our questions, with all those things that we might be struggling with. Because, Lord, you're drawing us to you. You're sanctifying us and you love us. Lord, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> when my mom was younger than she is now, I was obviously much younger too. When I was a young man, my mom was involved in a different religion. It was one that uses the Bible but had a bunch of stuff. It was a Jesus Plus type religion. And she was starting to run into problems. So I called her and asked her, I said, hey, can I share that? Do you think that'd be helpful? And she said, oh, please, that would probably help people. So she was running into problems in that religion. She was saying, look, I, I'm reading scripture and I have questions. And she would take her questions to the leaders and to the other people. And she'd say, help me understand how this works and help me understand how that works. And they would say, oh, you shouldn't be questioning these things. It shows you don't have faith. You just have to trust. And, and she'd say, wait, I need to understand. And, and they wouldn't help her with her difficulties or her objections. And they even told her that she wasn't being faithful by having doubt. Well, she's not involved in that anymore, praise the Lord. She's a Christian, and uh, God took those challenges and used them mightily. But in the scripture that I just read, what we just heard from Paul, we see that, that Paul is dealing with objections. He's saying there are these questions and these doubts and these objections. And we see, I think, that it is okay to have questions. 
of the Lord. It is okay to struggle with these things. It is okay to deal deeply with objections. We don't have to say we must just be blind to it. Because God can handle our objections, and he can handle our doubts, and he can handle our questions. And and I would just like to say that if he couldn't, why would we want to follow him? He can handle it, and he does. So here's what I want to do this morning with the text we just read. I want to look at the five specific objections that Paul has presented and his answers. And then I would like to to just take a, a few moments, maybe, to see these few lessons we can learn about having questions and doubt and objections and and how that might work in general, sort of in the general terms. Because as I'm reading this passage, as I'm thinking about it, I'm imagining Paul and I can see him and he's thinking and then he's writing and then he's thinking some more and then he's writing furiously and he's working through it and you can just see that he's getting caught up in all of the argument. Does he have specific people in mind? Is he thinking about a specific objection, a specific conversation? Is he hurt as he's working through how that conversation might have played out in this town or that town? You can tell it's personal for him. I think these objections were objections he really heard. You can tell this is something that he is passionate about because he even gets swept up in the argument so much so that if you look uh, in verse 2, he says first, so first, and then he never gets to the second So firstly, he never gets to secondly. He does that also in the first chapter in verse 8. Now, maybe some scholars are saying maybe he's just saying this is of the utmost importance. But it really does to me seem like he got so wound up in this thing that he just forgot the little little transitional pieces because the argument is just coming out of him, empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Either way, He's just made a really serious argument. He said, look, uh, I got a lot here to say. And now he's saying these are the objections to those arguments. He's thinking about it and saying this is the objections that I think might be coming up. If you look down, depending on your translation, now it wasn't like this in the original, but certainly you can see it in the tone and in the word choices. There's a lot of question marks and a lot of exclamation points here. It's a lot going on. Paul has argued that sinners need the gospel. He said, sinners need the gospel. The wicked world needs the gospel. And then he said, Gentiles need the gospel. And then he said, the Jewish people need the gospel. And he just got done, as we heard from Pastor Josiah last week, saying the law is not enough. It will not do it. It will not save you. So let's go ahead and break down these five presented objections and answers. Let's see how this is playing out in his argument. Objection number one, you see it in verse one. Chapter three, verse one. I'm going to summarize it for you. It goes like this. If the Jews and Gentiles stand before God in the same way, there's no difference between how they're going to stand in judgment. To what advantage is it to be Jewish? Is it of any advantage? What's the benefit of circumcision? Which is his way of saying, what's the benefit of obeying the law? He's specifically going back to circumcision because he just made that argument. Why? Is it advantageous? And then in his words he says, yes, it is advantageous. And in my translation they put an exclamation point there, which I think is true. It's emphatic. There is a great advantage. Why? Because they were entrusted with the very words of God. That's an advantage. 
So even the Gentiles were at that point and are saved through faith. Gentiles and Jews. The door is open and it's unlocked for both. But the Jews had signposts. They had these markers saying, go this way, do this. They had instructions about how to go to that door, how to go through that door. There was a a doormat there and there was, God had said, this is where the door is and this is how it's unlocked. Let me put it another way. They had guardrails on the windy road on the highway that goes to the cliffs and the mountains. They had these guardrails there, and they had road signs that said, slow down here and go this way, and they had you know, the reflection markers so that you had to be very serious if you were going to jump over the rails and fly off the cliff. Now, sadly, some of them still did, but they had that advantage that the Gentiles didn't have. God spoke to them. God fought for them. God showed them great signs and wonders. So it's of great advantage. If you have God's word, okay, if you have the local church, and if you have a body of believers around you to help you with this, and if you have a pastor who wants to help you, you're blessed just like the Jews. You have the same great advantage. There are a lot of people in the world that don't have that. They don't have a Bible translated in their own language. They can't gather together. They can't have a discipleship meeting at the coffee shop. They don't have a pastor. They don't even have a church in their town. We have that. You have that. So don't take it. Don't don't scoff. Don't jump over the guardrail. Don't miss the door. Take advantage of that. It's advantageous in every way. And what a blessing it is for our kids to be growing up in Christian homes opposed to not. That's what he's saying. It is advantageous that you have this. Objection number two is in verse two. Summarized, it goes like this. The Jews had the word of God, the very words, the very revelation, which we just talked about. And yet, many of them were still not faithful. And then the objection is, well, is that God's fault? Did he give the law to the wrong people? Did he make a mistake? If they were God's chosen people to be the witnesses to the world and they blew it, is this God that can't even seem to get it right with those people worth following and trusting? That's the objection he's, he's raising. And before any of you start writing me an email saying this is an anti-Semitic thing or this is really unfair to the Jewish people, I want you to ask yourself this question. We have all the blessings. We have the Word of God. We have the witness. And are we always good ambassadors for the Lord? Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing to share the gospel with the world? Are we any different than them? No. So what are people to think about God because he chose us and we dropped the ball? What are we to think about God because of the failures we see in God's people? That's the objection. Well, I don't like God because his people are nincompoops. I know some of you don't like that word. It's a very technical Hebrew word. (laughs) It's not, (laughs) but... What are we to say about God? Here's Paul's answer to that objection in summary. Paul says, our failures, our struggles, even if we were to lie and and turn away from God and have problems, changes nothing about who God is. The truth of God cannot be changed by our mistakes, by our misrepresentation, and by our lies. He says, if everybody were to lie, God is still God because we don't define who God is and we don't make God God. 
God will be God no matter what we do or do not do. God is still worth it even if his people are completely unrighteous. Really what they're arguing here is that, like we should give up on God because these people weren't good with God. That's really like saying, I'm not going to trust Jesus because Judas stabbed Jesus in the back. It's silly, right? And yet we do think that, and we do see these objections. Let's go ahead and look at objection number three. It's found in verse five. Here's the summary. Why should we be worried about sin if our sin gives God a chance to show how great he is? Aren't we doing him a favor? So why should we be so worried about all this sin? Some of you are chuckling, you're laughing. The reality is there are a lot of Christians today who live exactly like this is how they understand God. I can do whatever because I'm great and I'm doing God a favor. Look at, because I get to be walking with God, God is blessed because of me. That's how they function. It shows that they do not understand God. Your sin was placed on Jesus so he could die for it. Every stripe that he took for your sin was far worse than a nail through the hand or a spear through the side. It was the very wrath and judgment of God that he took for you. So what are you thinking not being concerned about your sin? You think Jesus just, you know, loves being crushed for your sin? He likes it. He thought this was great. This is what he wants, so it's great. I'm helping this guy out. That attitude doesn't show a love for Christ. It shows a love for your sin. So let's be aware. Let's be mindful. Really. Objection number four. This is found in verse seven. Here's a summary. This is how it goes. Isn't God unrighteous, or you could say ungodly. Isn't God ungodly? Isn't God unrighteous for inflicting his wrath on people? That's the objection. And you go, that doesn't make any sense. Well, let me tell you how we say it in our day. How can a loving God send people to hell? That's how we say the same thing. I'm going to tell you. A just God administers perfect judgments. A just God administers perfect judgments. He would be unjust and unloving if he were a bad judge. If he were showing favoritism over here and not judging correctly over there, if he's being evil over here, if he's making bad judgments over there, he wouldn't be a loving, good judge. He'd be a terrible judge. We don't want to judge like that. Think about how angry people get in our world today, in the last few years, when they think that justice was not administered properly. When they think a judge made some incorrect judgment, when they thought a jury did something wrong, when they think the police didn't administer justice correctly, think about how mad they get. Some people not only get mad, they start rioting and they burn down their own city because they feel that there has been a breach of earthly justice. How much worse would it be if God made an eternal breach of justice? How mad should we be? Yet the people who make this objection, that the, this, they want this breach of justice for themselves. They don't want God to be an unjust God, but when it comes to their own issues, they want him to be a bad judge and just let them skirt by. If they were sinned against to the extreme that God was sinned against by them, they would demand justice. They would say, 
Let's get those fire, fires blazing in the lake of fire. Let's go. I demand justice. I mean, I burned down my city three times. Let's go ahead and burn this up. Is that not what they would want? They would act very differently if they were the judge rather than the accused. That's the issue with that. And listen, church, it's not surprising. It's not surprising that in God's perfect justice, God sends sinners to hell. What is surprising is that in his love, in order to show grace, he elects to put the sin of the guilty on some of those sinners. He takes that sin and he puts it on his own innocent, perfect son. Then he crushes his son under that wrath in perfect divine judgment. That's shocking. That should just infuse our anger that God would do that to the one who doesn't deserve it. That he would put our guilty verdict on his son and administer that justice to his son so that we could be saved. That's shocking. Where is your guilty verdict right now? Is it still pinned on you? Or was it placed on Jesus? Are you grateful that Jesus went to hell and back for you in your place? Or are you going to be going there yourself? There are people who don't want to hear sermons that mention hell. Maybe some of you are sitting in this room. I get it. You don't want to believe that God would send sinners to hell in judgment. But when we take hell out of the equation, we take Jesus' victory out of the equation. When you take God's perfect justice out of it, you also take His perfect, amazing love out of it. You can't have one without the other. Friends, I just want to encourage. God will show you His love and His grace if you will believe in Him And if you will trust in him, he will do this for you. His word promises it. If you're in here and you're afraid that his grace might not be upon you, but instead is justice, come talk with us. Talk with another Christian in the room. Work it out. Pray. Let's get together. This is important because Jesus will, will save you if you will simply trust him. His word makes that promise and his promises are true. Let's go to the last objection here. It's verse 8. The summary of this goes like this. If, if your sin means that God can show more of his grace, like, wow, because he can forgive you, he can show more grace, and then he can get more glory, shouldn't we sin more so there can be more of God's glory? That's how the argument goes. And since it's Father's Day, I thought I would think about it like this. Some of you may have grown up with, or maybe you are, that dad that can fix any broken toy. You can get out the screwdriver, you can open up things, you can rewire things, you can glue things. Somehow, you can fix any broken toy. And your kids are like, my dad can fix anything. My dad is awesome. He can fix every broken toy. Any of you have a dad like that? Like, praise the Lord for dads who can fix anything. But it would be nonsense if we said, I'm going to break all my toys so my dad can fix them. That would be great. 
I fixed toys for my kids quite a bit. And I had a dad who fixed toys. And I've known some dads who can fix just about anything. And I just want to tell you, dads don't like fixing broken toys. <laughs> they love their children, so they fix their broken toys. So there's no reason to break all your toys to get your dad's love, okay, or to show him glory. That's the, that's the objection here, and I think when we see it in those terms, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Paul's been laboring now for, for two full chapters to show us that we are sinners and we are in need of salvation. In these verses, and in the verses we're going to deal with in the next week, and the week after that, he's really summarizing this up and driving the point home to get our attention before he moves on to faith, before he moves on to how we are saved by Jesus Christ. He's basically spending three chapters on this. Does this look like how most evangelicals share Jesus with the world? Think about it. Does this look like how we share the gospel. Because that's what Paul's doing. No. It doesn't look like that. More often than not, we start with how great Jesus is. And we say something like, Jesus loves you. Which is true. But that's where we start. Jesus loves you. He wants to make your life better. He wants to save you. He wants to fix your broken toys. You really need Jesus. Isn't that not how we share the gospel? If you're on the other side of that conversation, wouldn't you not be like, really? Why? I don't see a problem. That's not how Paul shared the gospel. Paul started with the wrath of God, sinful humanity, the judge, the problem. He started with, we are all damned. We are all walking zombies who are dead in need of a savior. That's how he started. And he told the truth about us. He told the truth about sin. He called it what it was. He talked about hell and wrath and damnation for a reason. Because when you see it like that, then you have a reason to hear about a Savior, don't you? Then you have a reason. Paul shows us our greatest problem because he's dealing with the most serious of things and our greatest needs. And let's not forget, let's go all the way back to Romans 1.17. He said, the righteous shall live by faith. That's how this whole thing started. And then he followed it up, or he said it a little bit ahead before that in 1.16. It's the gospel that has the power to save. He's talking about salvation, but he's got to be honest about our status, where we're at and where we're going without Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, look, I've been talking about this, but let's talk about the objections. And he wasn't afraid to do so. And so I think we should be encouraged not to be afraid to talk about the offensive things in the world to talk about these objections. We should not be afraid to talk about them. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about hell or judgment. Listen, hell's supposed to feel offensive. We weren't created to want hell and think it's exciting. It's supposed to feel offensive. That's why it bothers us when we hear about it. That's the point. But by no means shall we ignore it. We must talk about it. I'm concerned that Satan is dancing a jig in this world where we throw parades to celebrate sin. And the only sin that we have in this world is calling something a sin, right? Is that not the world we live in? I think that makes Christians afraid to 
talk about these difficult things. It makes us afraid to talk about objections. It makes us afraid to confess that we might too have doubts or maybe that worldly argument seems reasonable on some level and I need to work it out. We're afraid to deal with the hard stuff, the objections and the questions and the doubts that start to surface in our lives or in our friends or among us. Let's not be afraid because Jesus can handle our objections and our doubts and our questions. It's okay. Paul has made that abundantly clear. It's okay. So now I'd just like to take the last couple minutes here to discuss what it is to think deeply about objections and questions and doubts and the gospel and to do it openly like we see Paul doing in this section of his letter. Sometimes these objections come from outside the church. Sometimes they come from inside the church. It's hard to know where these ones come from. He wrote this letter to the church. Maybe they were the ones having the objections. Maybe it was coming from outside of soul. It doesn't matter. He's dealing with them. He's dealing with them. So I just want to talk about objections, questions, and these difficult things, generally speaking, for just a couple minutes here. There are three suggestions I have for how we could and should deal with doubt, questions, and objections. The first is this. Don't stay on the surface. Go deep with God. Don't be content to just... Sit on the surface. Go deep with God. Isaiah 118 says, come, let us reason together. Or some translations say, come, let us settle this. God saying, you, me, let's figure it out together. He's inviting you. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and work according to his good purposes. Let's, it's okay to wrestle it out and to work it out. We can be okay with that. Don't be afraid to go deep. We don't have to keep it at the surface. God invites us to work out these difficulties with him. He's making that invitation known. It's not a lack of faith. So let's not keep shallow with God because we're afraid our questions might be too difficult. They're not. There's no question too difficult for God. He can handle them. Let's not be afraid of the answers we might find. Let's just take them to God and see what he might have for us. And I certainly don't think this is a lack of faith to do this, like my mom was told or maybe you're afraid of. If you're willing to take your question to God, that's the most faithful thing you can do. I'm going to the source. I have faith that he'll help me through this and we'll figure it out. That's faith. Having doubts is not a lack of faith. What you do with it shows your faith or not. If you take it to the Lord, that's the most faithful thing. So do that question work it out reason use your mind and love god with all your mind and all your heart and all your soul and all your strength he says come let's settle this he says child let's figure this out together paul dealt with some hard significant questions it's okay we can too it's okay number two let's please keep it centered on the gospel these things can become a real distraction if we don't remember that it is to be centered on the gospel. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 14-16. He writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ as Lord, excuse me, Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Be ready 
at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. The word from where we get defense, be ready to make a defense here in this verse, is apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics or apologist. Apologetics is a term that means defending the gospel before outsiders, those attacks that come in. So apologists will take up the charge, and here's the deal. For any apologist you may see in the world, and many of them have big platforms, they sell books, they want you to follow them on social media, and they want to make a big thing of it. To be a biblical apologist, you must be nothing more truly than an evangelist. You will not find an apologist in the Bible, but if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, you'll find an evangelist. That's because you're making a defense of the gospel. Why? So that you can share the hope that's in you. And you can do it in gentleness and respect that people might be saved. So a word of caution about some of the apologists in our day. And there are plenty of them. Most of our apologists that we see, many of them, we see because they're making a big name for themselves. They're making a big platform. And they say, I'm an apologist and I work toward this religion or that religion and my job is to destroy the religion over there or destroy the religion over there. Or they're battling for moral behavior. Do this or don't do that. There was a time when it was all about don't drink and here's the apologist telling you not to drink. In our day, it's don't be involved in CRT. Don't be... Uh, having an abortion, and we must do this about abortion. Let's deal with liberalism. And those things are not bad. But if you really look, most of those apologists have forgot the gospel in them. They've made it about moral behavior, moral correction. And they just want to destroy people's attitudes and destroy liberalism or destroy this or destroy that rather than leading the masses to the gospel. So you see them rallying fighting, arguing, and let's not forget the text says do it with gentleness, and yet they all seem so angry. If you want to see a true apologist, you see an evangelist. That's what the Bible makes known. Let's remember that we're to make a defense for the hope that is in us. That's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ, and we do it with gentleness. Now, Paul's primary reason for dealing with these objections that he mentioned is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the argument he's making. He's building this up to show us where we find salvation. He's been talking about these objections so that he can show us the beauty and the wonder of Jesus Christ. He's not angry at these people. He wants to see them saved. He's fighting for a purpose. Finally, my last one, and we'll close. Be committed to going the distance. Be committed to going the distance. Notice how many questions Paul asked here. He's really only dealing with one thing. He's digging deep. He's asking plenty of questions. He's working through it. Far too often, we're unwilling to invest in the time necessary to go deeply. We just want this one coffee mug verse to hang our entire faith on. I don't have time to read three paragraphs on something. Man, that's just too much. I don't know. Yeah, you have plenty of time. It's really about your priorities. Because you'll spend three hours watching a baseball game 
You'll watch Netflix for six hours. You'll scroll through miles and miles and miles of social media. You'll listen to all the political jabber. You will uh, do the sports talk. You'll do the financial podcasts. But you won't give 10 minutes to work it out deeply with the Lord. Commit yourself. Invest yourself into going the distance. I'm reading this biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and his Wednesday night Bible study was this. Everybody would put forward one question. He would select from the questions that were made one of them. And then for the next hour, they would drive into that question in discussion and study. One question to know how to think deeply on the Lord and go the distance. Be connected to go the distance. All of these points were one thing. We're all under the wrath of God and we all need a Savior. That's what all the objections he's dealing with deal with. The reason I share these thoughts on how to handle objections and doubt and question is because I know you may have doubts. You may have questions. You may have people coming to you with objections. Don't be upset about it. Be okay with it. Let's be committed to keeping it uh, centered on the gospel. Let's go deep and let's go the distance because God can handle our questions and God can handle our doubts and God can handle the objections. So let's just let him. Charles Spurgeon said, you don't have to defend the lion in the cage. You just have to open the cage and let the lion out. So if you're in this place, I just encourage that you pray the prayer of Mark 9, 24. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you deal with objections. I thank you that you can handle this. I thank you, Lord, that you will deal with our doubts if we'll bring them to you. So God, I ask that you would help us with these objections and that you would help us with these things. God, that we believe, Lord, but you'd continue to help us with our unbelief. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.